Well, good evening and uh, welcome back to uh, Centrepoint as we uh, make our way through uh, the topic of Christology. And uh, tonight, uh, we've just sung, of course, a hymn. I hope you know what it is you just sung, but we sung a hymn on the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the first three verses, first verse was about the Father, the second verse was about the Son, and the third verse uh, about the Spirit. And uh, uh, what we are discussing uh, now in our school of theology is the relationship of the Son to the Father. Uh, the Nicene Creed, uh, which we're going to look at in a minute, uh, was also a statement, at least the uh, eventual outcome of it uh, in, the, in the so-called Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed uh, was also a statement about the Trinity, about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, we'll come back uh, later and talk about the Holy Spirit, um, but tonight our focus is on the relationship of uh, the Word, the Word of God, the Lord Jesus, as the Son of God to uh, the Eternal Father. How there is but one God, but there are two who are that one God. Uh, the Father is God, the Son is God, and what does that mean exactly? How can, how can the two be one and the same God? Uh, we are jumping this evening into the fourth century. Uh, the Nicene Creed is uh, 325, uh, uh, AD 325, and then... Uh, there was a return to it again uh, in the city of uh, Constantinople in 385, some, uh, some 60 years uh, later, which added another uh, section on uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, on the cover, uh, I've got a little quotation uh, from a book which I doubt that any of you are going to admit that you've read. Uh, Dan Brown's uh, Da Vinci Code. Uh, probably, it's probably true to say that no one had ever heard of the Nicene Creed except for a few uh, Eastern Orthodox folk and uh, maybe those of you who, um, who actually read through Trinity Hymnal. Uh, at the back of Trinity Hymnal uh, there is a copy of the Nicene Creed. Uh, along with the Apostles' Creed there's, there's a uh, there's the Nicene Creed. Actually, it's not the Nicene Creed. Uh, it's, uh, it's the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed uh, that's in Trinity Hymnal, although it, it says it's the Nicene Creed. Uh, I just want to have a little word with the editors that that's not actually correct. Um, but um, here in the Da Vinci Code, uh, you have uh, Tabing uh, and, uh, and his companion Sophie, and uh, they're having a little conversation uh, about the Nicene Creed and uh, uh, Tabing declares uh, until that moment in history Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet a great and powerful man but a man uh, nevertheless a mortal and uh, Sophie is astounded by this uh, not the son of God uh, she says uh, and uh, he replies right Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. And uh, she then replies, uh, flabbergasted, Hold on, you're saying Jesus' divinity was the result of a vote? And Tabing says, uh, a relatively close one at that. Well, actually, uh, most of that is fabrication. Um, then there was indeed a vote uh, about uh, Jesus being the Son of God uh, at, the Nicene, uh, at the Nicene Council. Uh, it wasn't a close one. Uh, it was somewhere in the region of 250 uh, voting yes and two voting against. So it was hardly a close vote. Um, and... Uh, uh, it, it wasn't as though the Nicene Creed established Jesus as the Son of God. What I think the Nicene Council did uh, was to ratify something that was already agreed upon uh, by the vast majority uh, of the confessing church. Well, 
before we can actually begin to look at the Nicene Creed, I think we need to talk about creeds and what our, um, what our response, what our attitude might be towards a creed. Uh, we recite the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. Um, it wasn't written by the Apostles, you understand. Uh, it's, its early form may be in the 4th or 5th century, but it's the form in which we recite it uh, probably belongs more to the 7th or even the 8th century. Uh, and they are statements of truth. Uh, I believe in God, the Father, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and so on. And we recite this uh, verbatim uh, every week as a great declaration of what it is that we believe. Actually, you realize uh, we are massively countercultural every time we do that. We are countercultural as far as the world is concerned, that we actually believe these things. Uh, but actually, we're countercultural as far as much of the church is concerned, who have abandoned these truths a long time ago. And I, I think, I think we, sometimes we need to sort of stop in the middle of the Apostles' Creed and say, do you do you realize how massively countercultural you're actually being right now in saying, I actually believe these great truths to be truths taught in the Bible? But what about, uh, what about things like the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed uh, of 451 uh, in, in AD 451? Uh, what is our relationship, say, to a confession like the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now let me say, first of all, that there's a difference between a creed and a confession. A creed, and usually when we talk about creeds, we're talking about ecumenical creeds, and ecumenical in the sense of a, a, a statement of truth believed by the universal church. That's, that's what was meant by the ecumenical creed. This was, to all intents and purposes, the, the church of the entire world. It wasn't quite that, but it was, it was the church as, as it then existed, making a statement about what the Bible actually taught. A confession is more of a denominational thing. We, we, we don't have anything like the ecumenical church anymore, unless you're a Roman Catholic, of course, uh, that still, still believes and still continues to have ecumenical councils, the last one being uh, the Second uh, Vatican Council in, in the 60s, in the 1960s. But as, uh, as Protestants, we, we no longer believe in, in, in the concept of an ecumenical church, and, and uh, we have... We have denominations uh, that have confessions. So a confession is a, is a, is a, is a denominational thing and uh, a creed is something that the universal church believes. Let me put it in a more, uh, in a more uh, confrontational way. Um, if you don't believe what's in an ecumenical creed, you are not a Christian. Now, that should be confrontational enough. Uh, the, what, what they're saying is, these are fundamental truths that belong to Christianity. So if you don't affirm these truths, whatever it is that you believe in, it's not Christianity. It may be a liberal form of Christianity, and, and as Gresham Machen uh, wrote uh, almost, almost uh, a century ago now, but but uh, Gresham said that liberalism is a different religion. It's not, it's not even Christianity. It's, it's an entirely different religion. Well, let's talk about creeds. Um, there are those, of course, uh, who don't believe in creeds or, or, or they believe in, in, in uh, the statement, no creed but the Bible, except that that statement is itself a creed. Uh, that statement is itself a statement of, of doctrine, uh, that uh, there is no creed but the Bible. Well, of course, if you adopt that view, uh, then we can't talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, because the doctrine of the Trinity is not in the Bible. It is, it is 
teasing out of the Bible truths that the Bible teaches that there is only one God, but there is more than one who is that one God. And the doctrine of the Trinity is an attempt by the church to try and formulate what the Bible doesn't actually formulate except that it tells us those two things, that there is only one God and there is more than one who is that one God. Or um, the hypostatic union, uh, which is how do the two natures of Jesus, the divine nature and the human nature, relate? Because the Bible says he is the son of God, but the Bible also says that he is a human being with a finite mind and a finite human body. And, and how do those two things relate to each other? And uh, that's, what the doct- that's what the Council of Chalcedon uh, in 451 uh, was addressing. Uh, Nicaea is addressing the issue of how does the Son of God relate to the Father? So, so Nicaea is addressing the issue of the doctrine of the Trinity uh, rather than uh, how do the two natures of Jesus, the human nature and the divine nature of Jesus, uh, relate to each other. Now we, we face, as we think about creeds, we face some massive issues and problems. Uh, we, we face the, the, the problem in our, in our time that there are those who think that history can't teach us anything. Uh, that we live in a postmodern world, uh, and, that, and postmodernity as a philosophy of, of life and as a, as a way of understanding all things poses massive skepticism, first of all, about our ability to know what happened in the past at all, uh, and about how the past has any relevance to the present. Uh, having moved through uh, a, a period of existentialism in the 20th century, that the only important, the only important thing epistemologically is, is the now, is the right now, uh, and the past is irrelevant and the future is unknown, so the only, the only, the only relevant thing is the present. Um, Affirming belief in something that happened in 325 or in 385 in the Nicene Creed, uh, that, that, that faces a considerable uh, difficulty in the face of a position that says that history can't uh, teach us anything. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, referred to it as chronological snobbery, um, that the present is more important than the past, um, that we are better than our forebears, that we are on the cutting edge of society, that we think better, that, that science has disproved so many, so, so many things, and, and, and so on. And I have a quotation there from uh, C.S. Lewis, is Surprised by Joy, in which he refers to the issue of uh, chronological uh, snobbery. Well, at the, at the most mundane level, try talking to your children. Uh, about uh, stuff that you did when you were a youngster and they will, they will think it oftentimes inferior to uh, where they are today. Uh, it's a kind of chronological snobbery. Uh, now multiply that by, by a factor of a thousand. We are saying here that something that happened in 325 has massive significance to the way we understand the Bible and, and that faces the dilemma in our current society of how do we actually relate to history? Uh, second, another issue, it's actually number three uh, on your outline here, is the whole issue of language. We, we looked at this, and I, I've, I've, um, I've given you an, an outline here of something that we actually talked about in our very first lecture. How, how many of you, how many of you were, were present at the very first lecture a year ago when we actually addressed the issue of uh, the adequacy of language. Most of you were there, right? I know you've forgotten it now, but actually most of you were there. And, and, and what, what we talked about was the issue of language. Uh, the study of language is an interesting thing, and the study of language from a sociological point of view is an interesting thing, and there are those who think that language is... is uh, uh, is something that, uh, that, that grows and develops uh, according to a Darwinian sort of model from grunts and groans to, to something more 
um, sophisticated and, and that, that language is inadequate to contain objective truth. Uh, that poses m- massive problems for those of us who believe in, say, the Bible as being the infallible, inerrant Word of God containing objective truth, truth that is out there, truth that is true for everybody, whether they believe it or not, true, truth that is true for all times. And all centuries, it was as true in the first century and in the fourth century as it is in the 21st century. That that words, Greek words, Hebrew words, can carry objective truth and and that that objective truth can be translated into objective truth in the 21st century. Now, what I've just said... Uh, is, of course, opposed by uh, a a massive uh, force uh, which you can label, I mean, label it post-modernity, but but, uh, it's it's a skepticism, first of all, about whether there is such a thing as truth, and, and a skepticism that truth can be conveyed in human language, that human language is, is, um, Adequate is strong enough to actually convey through the centuries objective truth. And, and, and the way we address that as Christians certainly is to think about Jesus. Jesus is the incarnate God who speaks, and he speaks in Aramaic, uh, which I think was the language that he actually spoke in, and, and that, that that language is... is is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit written down in Greek and, and we can translate that Greek into, into English uh, so, so, that, so that there's a line of continuity from God speaking to words in the Bible to truth being actually conveyed. Now, you may think that you're not meeting this. You just need to turn on public television uh, on, a, on, a, on a, almost any evening and, and, and you will hear opposition to objective truth uh, on a daily basis. You, you, only have to, uh, you only have to read your newspapers and certainly your children uh, at university and college uh, and, in, and certainly in public school are being confronted by a skepticism about truth and about the adequacy of language uh, on a daily basis so that the average the average person in the street has a massive skepticism about the value of something like, first of all, the Bible, but has, but has a massive skepticism about a document produced in 325 or 3, uh, 385 uh, as to what possible relevance it could have to uh, our world uh, today. You know, we live in a world, and uh, those of you wanting to chase this a little further, um, Carl Truman's uh, recently published book, The Creedal Imperative, uh, addresses this, and uh, some, of the, some of the ideas that he's uh, wrestling with in that book are, are science. You know, science is always advancing, and as it advances, it, it corrects understanding of the past, so, so it develops a kind of culture that the past is generally incorrect, and what is correct is the present, and the present view of things. So, that, that leads to a kind of skepticism about anything like a document uh, called the Nicene Creed in 325 AD or, you know, the advancement of technology. And you might be one of these people who's just dying to get the new iPhone because the old is sort of out of date and it doesn't work and, and it's no good anymore and, and the new is better. And, and that culture, that mentality creates a kind of distrust towards things in the past like, like a Nicene Creed in 325 and, and so on. Let's, let's get into the Nicene Creed. Um, but, but I do want to underline just that point that adherence to a creed faces huge skepticism and opposition. Even, I suggest, in the modern church and and perhaps I'd be absolutely shocked if it doesn't, if it doesn't exist in this very room um, this evening. A, a kind of, how, how could it possibly be um, that, that a statement of truth that is true for all time 
discerned as it is out of the scripture, how could that possibly have relevance to me in 2013? Well, there were seven ecumenical councils. Um, Protestants only really give any kind of credence to the first four. Uh, They give a, a sort of nodding acquaintance to the last Three and, and tonight we're only looking at the very first one, the First Council of Nicaea in 325. And, and perhaps um, we ought to be aware that there is a relationship between it and the next one in Constantinople. That's not surprising in that Nicaea is just a few miles away from uh, Constantinople, which today we would understand as Istanbul. Um, And Nicaea was a much more pleasant place than Istanbul or Constantinople because Nicaea was on the lake uh, and it it was a very attractive place to be and and 250 or so bishops and other uh, elders or presbyters and some lay folk and the emperor Constantine uh, gathered uh, for a couple of months. Constantine, I think, was only there for the first uh, few days, uh, but he but he opened this council, but you can imagine uh, this idyllic sort of spot uh, where, uh, where they met at Nicaea. Uh, so Emperor Constantine uh, called this first uh, council of Nicaea uh, to attend uh, because of a, a political situation more than anything else. Uh, uh, you're in a period where the church is beginning to uh, to, to uh, form uh, division and fraction. Uh, there was division between East and, and West. There, were, there was division between those in Asia Minor and those on the north coast of uh, Africa. Uh, and uh, this division was largely uh, over the identity of the Son of God, whether he was true God of, of, of tr- a true God, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. I'm quoting the Nicene uh, Creed. And uh, so a council was called. I think Constantine's motivation in calling the council was largely political rather than theological. Uh, The the two largely affected each other uh, in the fourth century. And the issue uh, to the surface here is Arianism. Arianism. And the two uh, principal protagonists here was a man, uh, an elder, a presbyter, and, and then a priest by the name of uh, Arius. Uh, and uh, his opponent, his much younger opponent who outlived uh, Arius by a considerable amount. And there's a moral in the story that it's always easier to take on uh, perhaps a, an older person. And Arius was by the time of the council, uh, worsening in health and eventually became something of a decrepit uh, kind of uh, figure. Um, But Athanasius and uh, Arius are the two uh, protagonists. Uh, Arius' dates uh, from the middle of the 3rd century. Uh, There's some debate as to when he was actually born uh, until 336. Nicaea is 325, so he, he barely lives a decade, 12, 13 years or so uh, after, the Nicene, uh, after the Nicene Creed, in which Arius was, uh, was, was roundly attacked and condemned as a heretic and, and banished uh, from the realm. Uh, he was born in Libya. Uh, that's perhaps... Uh, needs a comment or two. We, we think of Libya today as North Africa. We think of a hotbed of, uh, of Islam, uh, that whole north coast of uh, Africa uh, today, uh, all the way through to Egypt. We, we, we think of it as Islamic, but in the first four or five centuries, it, it was the greatest seat of Christianity. It's where Christianity flourished uh, in the post-apostolic Days, uh, So he's born in Libya, died in Constantinople, uh, but he was a presbyter and later a priest in Alexandria, uh, a very, very significant city uh, in the 4th century with an with a incredible library which eventually burnt uh, uh, with, with a tremendous loss uh, of uh, books and artifacts from the great uh, 
Library in Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, Nicaea was convened to combat this, this issue of Arianism. Uh, there was an anti-Arian party uh, led, first of all, by the Bishop of um, Alexandria, whose name was Alexander, right? Stay focused, because it, it, it all gets kind of complicated, but the Bishop of Alexandria was a man by the name of Alexander, and, and he uh, was the first protagonist against Arius, uh, but he was subsequently uh, uh, he died, and, and then the next, the next person would be Athanasius, and it's Athanasius that we remember uh, today as the opponent of, um, uh, of Arius. Now, fundamental to the Arian party was a foundational statement, a foundational truth, uh, a, a foundational presupposition that even though they believed that Christ was a divine-like figure, he wasn't divine in the sense that God the Father was divine. And one of the, one of the mantras um, that emerged from Arianism uh, was the mantra, there was a time when the Son was not. In other words, Jesus, the Son of God, was the supreme creation of God the Father. He, he, was, he was greater than man. He was greater than the angels. Uh, he was the supreme created being, but he was still a created being. There, there was a, a time when the Son was not. The, the, issue, uh, the issue revolves... And we'll come back to it, but just, just hold this thought in your head. The issue revolves around uh, a word, uh, a word in Greek, homoousios, and a word, homoousios. If you, you just need to look down at the text here, and you'll see that the only difference between those two words is one letter, uh, the letter I, or in Greek, the letter iota, and, and you've all heard the expression, not an iota of a difference. Well, there is all the world of a difference in an iota because one, one was saying he is like God, but we are like God. We are created in the image of God. So being like God is not a statement that you are God. We are like God, but we're not God. He was like God. The other, homoousios, means that he was God. He was of the same essence as God. He was, to use the language, consubstantial uh, with the Father. Now, it gets a little more complicated here, the language of consubstantial, essence, essentia, substantia. That, that's all Latin stuff. And, and this debate was conducted largely in the Greek world. Now, in the early church, there was a Latin section, there was a Greek section. The two didn't really speak to each other much. It's like having Hispanics among us, and, and, and we may know three words, unless you're Justin Bricky. We may know three words in, in, in Spanish. We, we know they're there. We, we think we understand them, but we don't. And, and this problem exists it existed even at Nicaea that some are speaking, speaking Latin and some are speaking Greek, but actually they don't understand each other. And, and they use Latin words to translate Greek words, and they don't always get that right. So there's a great deal of confusion. Even, even at Nicaea, some of that confusion um, exists. Now, the agenda for this Lakeside uh, Council uh, was uh, more than just the person of Christ and, and, and fascinatingly interesting not uh, issues uh, like the date of Easter and the election procedure for bishops and elders and the administration of the sacraments. All, all of those things were also debated in, in a council that lasted for about two months. Um, but, the, but the most central part was on this this issue of the person of Christ. Uh, only the bishops uh, participated, the, the elders, uh, presbyters, and the laity uh, simply watched. Uh, Arius uh, uh, 
uh, Arius' statement, uh, there was a time when the Son was not. Uh, the issue of the pre-existence of Jesus. Uh, was he a supreme created being or was he actually God? In, in Latin language, was he consubstantial with the Father? Or in Greek language, was he homoousios? a word that will find its way into the Nicene Creed. And so this, this issue of, of uh, homoousios uh, becomes uh, the most significant thing, perhaps, that we remember Nicaea for. Now, um, Arius was a no-creed-but-the-Bible kind of um, arguer. Um, he, he quoted Bible texts for his position. He quoted uh, Colossians 1.15 that says Jesus is the firstborn of creation. And you can understand uh, the surface reading. He's the firstborn, so he's the first of God's creation. He's the supreme of God's creation. And, and, and it wasn't as though Arius didn't believe in the deity of Jesus. He actually believed that Jesus was some kind of divine divine figure, except that he was a created divine figure. He was, he was less than and therefore, therefore subordinate. Do you remember last week? In an ontological sense to the Father. This is the kind of debate that, that took place at Nicaea. Boiling it down to its, to its nuts and bolts, was Jesus as much God as the Father is God, or was he less than God? In some way. Now, in the Greek world, of course, it wasn't difficult to think of lesser gods. They had a pantheon of gods, and there were supreme gods, and there were lesser gods. Uh, and there were gods who were created by supreme gods. That's part of, of Greek mythology. So, in the Greek mindset, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult, particularly uh, in, in, in uneducated circles, say, to. to uh, to think of Jesus and to, and to even worship Jesus, but to worship him as a created being uh, nevertheless. Um, the Shema of Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4, Behold, the Lord your God is one. Right? So there is only one God, and that God is the Father. Uh, and he is, he is, uh, he is uh, uh, ingenerate. Uh, the, the Son is generate, the Father is ingenerate. Uh, we talked last week about what does uh, only begotten mean. Uh, let's take the King James Version. Uh, For God so loved the world that he, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Monogenes in Greek. What does monogenes mean? Only begotten. The idea of the Son being begotten. And, and the only way that you and I can think of that is that our Father always pre-exists us. There, there was a time when, when, when we were not, and our Father was. Uh, that's the only way we can think of a Father-Son relationship. A Father always, always pre-exists the Son. And, and does that therefore apply to the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? All of these issues, they may sound... Uh, uh, esoteric, but actually th these issues are debated, of course, every time you speak to somebody who's a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, the, the, same, the same kind of issue about how does a Jehovah's Witness think of Jesus, uh, and you've had the person knock on the door, uh, uh, and, and they're Jehovah's Witness, and, and, and I've invited them in, and I brought out my Greek New Testament and gone to John 1 and, and, uh, and, and done a, a naughty uh, on them uh, by trying to get them to read the Greek text here because the Greek text doesn't say uh, what the Jehovah's Witness uh, uh, folk often insist that it does say. Then turning the page, uh, Athanasius, the, the, the major protagonist here, some debate historically whether he was actually a member of the council and if he was a member of the council, whether there was some hanky-panky because he wasn't really old enough to be a member of the council, to be a bishop. You had to be 30. You know, Jesus was 30 when he began his ministry. So for a long time to become a bishop in the church, you had to be 30. And, and the dates don't actually add up. So he may have been 28 or something. And, and was there a bending of the rules in order to get Athanasius, who by now was becoming the great spokesman 
spokesman against Arianism into the council, lots of uh, historical issues dealing with that. Um, his contribution to the council was one letter. Actually, make that one letter. The Greek letter, iota. That Jesus is not just homoousios, but homoousios. That, that he, is, he is of the same essence as the Father. It's not that he's just like the Father. He is of the very same essence as the Father. Uh, so I've given you a little table um, and, and there were some, some others. Uh, we won't go into Eunomius uh, here, who's another, another guy altogether. Um, uh, there's a famous jibe that the world woke up one day and found itself at war over an iota. And actually that was, that was true. Um, following the Nicene Creed, uh, Athanasius... Um, Athanasius fell foul of Constantine. Uh, it's, it's a rather m- muddied sort of relationship. Constantine was essentially a politician. Uh, and uh, after Nicaea, which, brought, which was an attempt to bring the church together, actually it didn't bring the church together. It just separated those who were for Arius and those who were against Arius. Uh, And so Constantine, after the Nicene Creed, tried to bring Arius back into the fold again, bring him back from banishment, uh, bring him back into the church again, and uh, Athanasius resisted it, and uh, Constantine had Athanasius banished to Gaul, France, which was at the edge of the world uh, in the fourth century, and, and it was about, it would be equivalent to being banished to Siberia uh, for, us, uh, uh, for us today. Uh, and uh, Athanasius is a, is, a, is, a, is a great theologian, and we remember him for defending the deity of Jesus. I doubt that you would like Athanasius. Uh, I, I think he was rude, I think he was, he was difficult. Um, I, he, he, he certainly uh, could engage, I think, in thuggery and uh, intimidation. Uh, I think he used the force of, uh, of arms, muscle, uh, to cajole people to orthodoxy. Uh, there are all sorts of stories about Athanasius. M- m- most of them, I don't think, are true, and they're, and they're put about by his enemies, including sexual misconduct and, and other things. And I don't think any of those stories are true, but those stories were certainly bandied about uh, in the late 4th uh, uh, century. Uh, all, of which, uh, all of which to say uh, that after, uh, after Athanasius uh, in uh, the uh, early three uh, 30, some of uh, Athanasius' enemies uh, in Egypt uh, tried to uh, bring a kind of pro-Aryan um, uh, uh, coalition together, uh, managed to persuade the Emperor Constantine that the better way forward uh, politically uh, was, not, was not to uh, banish folk like Arius because of unorthodoxy, but to try and, uh, try and unify the church uh, once again. Well, that's the problem, of course, of, of uh, an alliance between the church and the state, because if the church is going to defend orthodoxy, there are going to be those who are unorthodox. And what do you do with those who are unorthodox? And, and the result is that you have a disunited state as well as a disunited church. You now have a disunited state uh, as well. Well, uh, on the bottom of the page where you have a picture of Athanasius uh, and a table that says Greek meaning and proponent at the bottom of the page number four, uh, you actually have a statement of the Nicene Creed. And let's look at it uh, briefly uh, together. And let me say before I read this, um, this is, you know, this is what the church for a thousand years believed was orthodox Christianity. And, and this is believed, the Nicene Creed is believed not just by the Western Church, but by the Eastern Church. The Nicene Creed would be upheld by the Greek Orthodox uh, Church, for example. So, so this is a statement of 
orthodoxy with regard to Christology, with regard to the person of Christ. So this is nothing to do with being a Presbyterian or a, or a Baptist or a Methodist. This is what it means to be a Christian, according to the, the, the 4th century Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's one God, and he's the Father, and now we believe in Jesus, and what does the Nicene Creed say about Jesus? And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, right? And the Greek, those of you who can read the Greek, they're monogene, like monogenes. He is the only begotten now, today we translate monogenes, as we were saying last week, we tend to translate monogenes not as only begotten, but as the one and only, a statement of uniqueness rather than a statement that might suggest origin. And that's, that's why this debate on Christology in the fourth century got into such, such muddy waters, be, be, partly because of the translation of this word monogenes suggesting origin. Uh, let's go back. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, or uh, it's Ionion, so it's before all eons, or you might translate that before time, which would be a, a, a better way of thinking about it, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Now, stop there. Now, now it's, it's, it's adding, it's piling on words, ideas, phrases. Partly these, you can imagine, part of these are phrases that would have been used during debates. Yeah, that's a good phrase. We'll, we'll, we'll take a note of that, write it down. Uh, we, we, don't know, we don't know the exact process of how the Nicene Creed actually functioned as a, as a kind of committee, uh, as a kind of structure. We don't have any records of that. All we have is the result of it. Uh, and uh, let's go back. Begotten of the Father. Now, remember last week I said the Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. There's one God, but each of the persons of the Godhead have a unique attribute. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. Now, if you, if you ask, what does that mean? I have no idea what it means. I have absolutely no idea what it means. And I don't think those who, who coined those phrases knew what it meant, except they, they felt as though they had to say something. Because we're talking about three in one and one in three. There are three who are the one. That one is also three. And, and that that's beyond our capacity to understand. And what they're trying to do here is to establish boundaries. And if you transgress this boundary, you're in heresy. Or only as you stay within, within these boundaries are you within the levels of orthodoxy. Even, even if you don't understand what you're actually saying, you know that if you take one step further, you're in heresy. Begotten of the Father before all worlds, or perhaps before all time, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Now that's a statement against Arius, because Arius at the end of the day insisted that Jesus was made. He was created. He was a, he was a supreme being, a, a supreme divine being even, but essentially created. And so the Nicene Creed is saying, no, Arius, you've taken a step that's in the, in the realm of, of heresy. So he's, he's begotten because he's a son. One is a father, one is a son. It's, it's the concept of begetting. One, one begets, the other is begotten. Right? One's called a father and one's called a son. And, and the way we think of that is in the, in, in the language, in the idea, in the conceptual idea of, of, of begetting. He's begotten, he's a son... But he's not made. Being of one substance, and, and you've, got to, you've got to understand substance, the Latins have come in here. 
substance is, is, a, is a notion that belongs to the Latin world, substantia, uh, one essence. Whatever makes God to be God, Jesus is that. However you define deity, Jesus is that. Right? Of the same substance, the same essence. Now, substance isn't a good word because God is, doesn't have substance. Because when we think of substance, we think of something physical, something tangible. And God is a spirit. He doesn't have substance. Right? So, substance for us, it didn't mean that in the 4th century. But for us, when we see that word substance, we think of something physical. So, so change it to the idea of essence then. Whatever makes God to be God... However you define deity, Jesus is that deity. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Now, that's that's what Nicaea in 325, it was reaffirmed again uh, in... 385 and, and some further additions were added, particularly with respect to the Holy Spirit in the Constantinopolitan Creed of 385. And what they're saying is this is an ecumenical gathering of the universal church. You could do that in the fourth century. Um, uh, this is what Christianity believes. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to believe Christian truth. And, and Beyond this, you're in the realms of heresy. So Arius, who was beyond these realms, was declared a heretic. And he was banished from the uh, realm. Constantine tried to bring him back in 336. And uh, he makes his uh, way to Constantinople. He's a poor and decrepit looking figure. There are all kinds of Stories that as he's walking through the streets, um, he is struck down before he is actually accepted back into the church. He is struck down and uh, and dies and dies in a latrine uh, in Constantinople. The, the rumors are that he was poisoned. The rumors are that Athanasius had something to do with it. There's there's no proof of that, but those were the rumors that the anti-Arians were defiant that Arius would not find his way back into the church. And on the eve of his reception uh, back into the church, he dies in this mysterious way. Uh, You know, Dan Brown uh, could make a great deal of it, I'm sure. Uh, in uh, the Da Vinci Code, but uh, that was the providence of God with respect to, uh, to Arius. Now, the very last paragraph, which is not on, on your handout because I forgot to type it in, but it's on mine, so I'm going to read it to you. Um, these creeds not only contained a statement of positive truth, they also had a sting in the tail. And this is how it went. And those who say there was when he was not, who's saying that? Arians. Those who say there was when he was not, and before his generation he was not, and he came to be from nothing. Or those who pretend that the Son of God is of other reality or substance, the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathematizes. Now, those, uh, those little statements and uh, these early creeds are full of these anathema statements. Now, when we read, if, if we were to read the Nicene Creed, say, from Trinity Hymnal one uh, Sunday morning, that would be interesting to do. If we, if we read the Nicene Creed, um, actually we're, we are, we're only reading a part of the Nicene Creed because the original Nicene Creed contains these statements of, of anathema. Um, the Scots Confession, if you want to make your, blood, your, your hair curl and your blood boil a little, uh, read the old Scots Confession because it was full of blood curling anathemas about those who held to different uh, truths. Uh, we live in a very different day, of course. 
Um, but uh, let, let me go back to the original question with which we began this evening. I wonder how you respond to the idea of a creed and whether a creed can have any kind of authority over that which you believe. It's not a different question to say what's your attitude to the Westminster Confession or what's your attitude to the Charlotte Catechism or for that matter to the Apostles' Creed uh, that we recite. What if you say I only believe half the Apostles' Creed? I, you know, I believe the first half but not the second half. And uh, I, think, I think when we, when we uh, read and study these ancient creeds as ecumenical statements of what Christianity is, I think it's about... about one of the most countercultural things that we can do in 2013. It, it demonstrates how, how different we are really from the rest of the world that lives in a world of pluralism and uh, certainly not a commitment to uh, objective truth that can be posited in words and sentences that have uh, timeless uh, binding force and energy. The Nicene Creed. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this uh, creed. Thank you for those who uh, put it together. We find it hard to imagine uh, how it could possibly be that we could sit down and uh, and come to some kind of formulation as to who Jesus was, putting all the pieces of the Bible together in some form that pronounces uh, a, a unified understanding of who he is. And we thank you, Lord, that truly uh, he is the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. So bless us, uh, Lord, we pray. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.